Hey, it's Jessica Marshall coming at you with another episode of The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. It is only December, but we are already thinking of next spring and summer this week in the newsroom. We got word that the Saratoga Racecourse is playing host to one of the legs of this year's Triple Crown. The Belmont Stakes will run in Saratoga June 8th. The New York Racing Association has officially picked Saratoga as the substitute while the Belmont track undergoes major construction. The other two legs of the Triple Crown are run in Kentucky, the Kentucky Derby, and the Preakness Stakes in Maryland. Also thinking about next spring and summer are the students and faculty at the College of St. Rose in Albany. The St. Rose Board of Trustees voted last week to close the college come June. Times Union education reporter Kathleen Moore has been covering the fallout of this major decision and joins me now on The Eagle to go over what we know so far. When we had this podcast last week, it was literally the 11th hour. We just got word of where we just confirmed and reported that St. Rose was going to close. The school itself hadn't even announced it. We had gotten it through our sources, like amazing reporters that we are. Just kind of give us a 35,000 foot summary of what happened since then. Okay, so we have um, a lot of employees who are already trying to find other jobs which is going to be a problem, particularly for teachers. You know, there's a limited number of teaching positions. So teachers are jumping already. But St. Rose is still determined to have school in the spring and to have a June session. So they're going to, I'm not sure how they're going to handle that. Wow. Meanwhile, the school has not given any details to students. But we know from talking to other colleges that juniors and those who are close to graduating but won't have enough credits by the end of a June session and grad students who are more than about 25% of the way through their program are not going to be able to transfer some of their credits. Oh, wow. That's a nightmare. Right. So they really need to transfer as soon as possible. If they're going to transfer, they would have to, first of all, find a place they want to transfer to, which is what colleges are starting to do now. Colleges are setting up information sessions and so on. Then for those students who are in a tricky situation where they might lose credits, they need to meet with a person in authority at that school to plead their case and get their credits to count, then they have to get into the courses that they need, courses that are already filled yes. in some cases. Because you know people already signed up for their classes for spring semester. What a nightmare. Now, at the same time, though, there are several schools that have stepped forward and said, we're going to help you. Yes. Yes. What's the situation there? Well, so like I, like I said, they they have to figure out these very individual I mean, what, what schools are basically saying to every student, particularly students who are juniors or who are grad students, is come in or call, obviously. Meet one-on-one with somebody to figure out what the best situation is possible for them. Don't just look at their online rules and say, oh, forget it, it's hopeless. Nationally, less than half of all students whose college closes go on to another college. That's a really sobering statistic. Right. Half of these students might just be so demoralized that they give up. Yeah. We don't want that to happen. So uh, I've been trying to provide a lot of information. Um, I'm not sure why St. Rose isn't providing it yet. To give you some context, when Casanova College closed near Syracuse, you know, last year, um, 
they had been having debt problems similar to St. Rose, and they were negotiating with banks to try to solve that problem. But they knew that if their negotiations failed, similar to St. Rose, knowing that if their negotiations for a merger failed, they were going to have to close. So while they were still negotiating, they were also setting up these teach-out plans, which are these sort of seamless transfer opportunities so that students could very quickly and easily, relatively easily anyway, uh, get into another school. Right. So, and that's, is that required by state law? Well, it is required by federal law. Uh, many colleges don't do it. And let's be honest, there's no real teeth to this because you're closing. What are they going to do to you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, but you are supposed to, and you could argue that ethically you really should. Right. So when Casanova closed, the day that they announced their closure, which they announced very openly, it went immediately onto their website. They had a live streamed announcement, et cetera. At that moment, they said, oh, and here is all of our teach-out plans. They were prepared. They were prepared. Right. Um, so by contrast, here we are um, uh, several days later, and students haven't gotten that level of detail and that help. And I know it's easy for us to say, well, they're all adults. They should just figure it out. But because we know that nationally, less than half of them continue on when their college closes... I think that it's pretty obvious that a lot of college students do need some help in this situation. Absolutely. And the fact that we can come up with a concrete statistic that shows that um, is indicative, right, of a larger trend, right? Colleges, right. small private colleges are closing left and right around the United States, right? Yes. There are a lot of colleges closing. Um, they are often private colleges. Um, they are often liberal arts colleges. Part of that is because of demographics. The fact of the matter is, is that there are fewer traditional age people for the well-foreseen future who are going to be available to go to college. So obviously colleges are trying to sort of pivot to getting older students, you know, uh, who maybe never got their degree or maybe never finished their degree. Maybe that half of all students whose college is closed and they never finished their degree, you know, they're paying school loans. Right. That doesn't disappear. Right, right. The school loans do not disappear. That's an important thing to note, by the way. Uh, If your college closes... You still got an education. You still have to pay those loans. Right. Now, let's go back to St. Rose for a second. What did Marsha White say? Uh, She spoke the day after the story broke. Yes. um, Which the college, again, did not officially announce until after it already came out in all of the publications. Um, What did she say? It's an interesting situation. So from a timing perspective, the Board of Trustees that Thursday voted to close um, she sent out a message to all the students telling them that oh, the news about uh, you know, speculating on the college's future is very concerning, but the trustees are working on it. We're coming up with options. Come tomorrow and we'll have a meeting about it. Then um, about you know five hours later, it became clear to us that St. Rose was not going to officially announce it. So we went ahead and announced it. And the only reason that um, I'm not a wreck and in tears is I am so angry at the fact that our students, our faculty, our employees, their parent, the parents of our students had to hear this news in the press rather than from us today, which is the time we had put aside to do a personal message to them and have a conversation. That's the way we do it at St. Rose. So the students, when they came to that meeting, expected her to say, hey, we are closing. And what she said to them was, I would be crying right now, but I'm so furious that you found out the way you did. Interestingly, though, when I talked to students, 
students told me that they were so grateful that we had told them and that they weren't confident that they would have been given the full story based on that email they'd gotten about how there were still options. You deserve an apology for the way you heard this information. I want an apology from you and the board. Everyone here deserves an apology. First of all, I did not vote. I'm vote. aware. I'm aware that this is multiple administrations' faults, and I know that's not all on you. All right, I'm gonna put that out there for everyone. I get that this has been a long problem, but you guys were not transparent with us at all. I would not have come. So she um, told them that in the days and weeks to come they will have teach out plans for them. It's important for students to know though that there is no benefit to waiting for the teach out plan versus just going ahead and making transfer uh, arrangements themselves. Mm -hmm. The teach out plan is supposed to make it easier to do your transfer, but you can do the transfer now. So Marsha White tells the students, you'll have a teach out plan, but at what point did they officially announce have they officially announced? They did. So uh, so we, we went to the meeting. Of course, we weren't allowed in. They wanted it to be private for the students. Um, of course, we have some audio from inside that room, right? <laughs> yes, but the point is, is that students were very uh, angry. Just say it. Apologize. I apologize for the fact that your feelings are very awkward. Thanks, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you have to face. I have never been on... Uh, I think some students felt betrayed. Uh, some students felt like they um, should have been warned that they wouldn't have come as freshmen this year. Like, you know, freshmen said, hey, I wouldn't have come this year if I had known. Right. right? Or the they, grad students that started. Right. They, yeah. they, they felt betrayed. So there was some shouting, some, hey, apologize to us. And then she would say, well, I'm just really sorry for the way you found out. I'm sorry for the, you know, terrible media. And, and that has continued. She's had a couple more meetings and there's been continued uh, anger, I think yeah. it's fair to say. So it's been a hard, a hard week for her. It's probably been a hard couple of years, I guess. I heading would guess toward this so. End. She says that she's spent at least the last year and a half trying to find merger partners. Hmm. So she's been dealing with this for a long time without telling anyone, and I'm sure it's been terrible. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So she. So Nobody she's told, wins here, <laughs> right now. No. So so she told students that at that meeting. Um, that she was angry at us, but also that they were closing. And then she gave us all a press release saying that they are closing. Okay, so that happened. So yeah, so Friday officially they announced that they were closing. Gotcha, gotcha. Now at that point, we were also seeing things like other colleges, like the University at Albany, mm -hmm. that college in Pennsylvania, Misericordia, yep. like reaching out publicly and saying, hey, we will... We will help. We will help, Russell yeah. Russell Sage is offering to help um, uh, SUNY Empire State which is particularly good at helping students who are like adults who have, you know, maybe a couple years of credits, but they have to put it together to finish their degree. Right. Right. Now, how many students are we talking about here? I see you have a lot of numbers there. Like, what's the ballpark of students that are, are dealing with this right now? So I don't know how many students are going to graduate. And we don't have clear numbers for how many students were there this year. But the federal government says that last year there was about 1,400 undergrads okay. and about, uh, about another, uh, roughly another 1,400 grad students. Mm -hmm. Grad students are mostly part-time, uh, and they're the ones who might be in the worst situation in terms of trying to finish a graduate degree elsewhere. Sure. Like I interviewed one student who calculates that after all of the sessions that St. Rose is going to offer, he's going to be three credit hours short of getting his master's. I talked to... That's like one class, right? 
Uh, you know, it's different for grad students, but yes, okay. it's it's uh, it's it's roughly maybe maybe forty five hours worth of work. Oh my gosh! Um, so I talked to several different colleges, and all of them said that there was no way he would be able to transfer in and just do those last three credits. Oh my goodness! He would have to redo at least half of his program. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Right. So now there are some options for him. Uh, he might. I mean, this would involve like not sleeping, right? But he could overload for spring semester. Now he's also working. Most grad students are. Right. But he could overload, you know, not sleep and, and get the work done. And that's probably what he's going to do. Oh, well, lots probably to come in yes. your reporting in the near future and the rest, the beginning of 2024, the first half of it. So I think we'll leave it there. But I mean, obviously, there's a lot of other uh, sort of periphery issues like what's going to happen to the buildings and what's going to happen to the neighborhood. What are the repercussions there? Right. Um, and also there's some issues that we've reported with the college's finances, kind of the college is still paying its former president, you know, per the contract. So there's there's a lot there. Um, there's a lot a lot of colleges that close end up filing for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Of course, I don't know what will happen in this case, but that will affect how the property gets handled. Many of the properties that have not sold or have a sale, you know, pending on approval of, of a project through the planning board or the zoning board of appeals. Um, many of the remaining properties are being used as collateral for their debt. So we don't know yet how all of those property sales are going to happen. I think it's fair to say that it's going to be massively complicated, right? Yes. You can follow Kathleen's coverage of the College of St. Rose closure, as well as all of the topics and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Also, check us out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and threads. We are going to take a short break right now, but we have a real treat coming up. Grammy award-winning singer-songwriter Judy Collins joins us when we return. Stay tuned. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Marshall. There are few musicians alive today as prolific as Judy Collins. The 84-year-old Grammy-winning singer-songwriter's career spans nearly seven decades. During that remarkable tenure, she put out 55 albums, including one just last year called Spellbound, and another in 2019 that notched her a number one album on the Billboard chart at the tender age of 80. Some of her greatest hits include a rendition of Amazing Grace, Both Sides Now, and Send in the Clowns. Judy Collins is coming to Universal Preservation Hall in Saratoga Springs on December 16th. She'll be performing her show, Holidays and Hits, she joins me now on The Eagle to talk about the show, her career, and the key to longevity.
So listen, I wanted to start with uh, like a personal story, if you don't mind. I am myself, I am a competitive figure skater. I've been competing in ice skating um, since I was, I don't know, six or seven years old. But when I was when I was younger, I skated to your rendition of Send in the Clowns. Oh, thank you. That's delicious to know. Thank you. <laughs> it was my one of my favorite performances and I did really well. I won lots of medals. So I wanted oh. to I wanted to thank you because that song oh. really was important oh, to me. Great. How great. Oh, I'm glad to know that. That's beautiful. All right. So um, I wanted to start out with what keeps you coming back to the stage? What keeps you back coming back to performing after so many decades? Well, I'm a performer. <laughs> That's what keeps me coming back. I started performing when I was a kid, you know, going on my father's radio show, the school shows, mm-hmm. the stuff I did, and then it's on the road from then on, you know. Wow. So, And you're never going to stop, right? You don't have any plans to, to stop? I love it. It keeps me alive. It keeps my brain working. So I will never... I will never, how should I say, uh, purposely stay off the road. Never. Sure. (laughs) How often do you perform these days? All the time. So next year will be the same. That's excellent. Now, are you still writing music? Are you still actively writing new songs and albums? My newest album is called Spellbound. Mm-hmm. It came out last year. It, it was given a Grammy nomination. And all the songs are brand new songs, and they're all songs that I've written. So it's very exciting. That's really, really exciting. What is, do you, you have so many. Do you have a favorite song? No. What do you kind of come back to most often then when you're performing, like things that people want to hear? There are maybe three or four songs that I'm, compelled to do let's say every other show mm-hmm. but everything else is a mixture of uh, 63 years of working in the music business making 55 albums and I have a lot to choose from if you know what I mean. <laughs> you have a lot of material that is amazing now as you said it's been 63 years at least you know almost seven decades um, you've seen a lot of of the music industry over these decades. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts about the music industry today? I mean, I, I saw... I don't think about the music industry. Yeah. I think about what I'm writing, what I'm singing, the concerts coming up. Um, I have a few new songs that I'm working on that I have to get to the piano to work on. Mm-hmm. I have about 30 different... Um, incomplete manuscripts that will allow me to focus in on the next book. You know, I've written nine books already. And so I want very much to deal with uh, a book that integrates my life with that of my father and my teacher, Antonio Brico. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot to do and I have to get down to business all the time. That's great. You are definitely very, very busy and you fit in performing around all of those other creative endeavors, too, which is just phenomenal to me. (laughs) What are your kind of where you are now with writing music? Like, what are you writing about? What are you what are you thinking about when you're writing music? What kinds of topics are you tackling? You know, I just sold a new poetry book. It's called Sometimes It's Heaven. And I, uh, in 2016, I was in the middle of a big 
plunge into different projects. I had made a duets album for the first time in my career. I had just recorded an album with Ari Hest of songs that we wrote together. Mm -hmm. I had just put out an album called Winter Stories with a group called the Chatham County Line Mm -hmm. and an artist whose name is Jonas Field. That album went went to number one on the Billboard charts. It's funny because Billboard called me and said, oh, we've got a number one for you, finally. I said, well, I've had a lot of number of numbers. <laughs> and uh, so that was a big, big 10 years of a lot of different projects. I did a Sondheim album with an orchestra. I did an Irish album in Ireland. I did the album with uh, Ari Hest, Silver Skies Blue also, which was nominated for a Grammy. In 2016, I said to my husband, you know, I think I have to, I'll go back to my usual position of work, which is to try to do 90 poems in 90 days and see whether those those ideas would turn themselves into songs. Hmm. And he said to me, why don't you do 350 or 365 and then you'll have a whole book of poems that you'll have a year's worth of poems. And I actually did it. I wrote a poem every day. Wow. And out of that 365 efforts came the album Spellbound, number one. And it also turned into the new book that I just sold to a publisher called Sometimes It's Heaven. So, you know, it all depends on what you're thinking about every day, what you write down. I'm a journal keeper and I'm a, I'm a note taker. And throughout my life, I, I started journaling when I was about 15, I think. Mm-hmm. And from then on, intermittently and sometimes ferociously, I've kept journals. And out of that comes a lot of things. I, I try to keep my dreams in mind, I'm trying to remember last night's dream, which I'm not remembering today for some reason. <laughs> but it's all about keeping yourself connected to the process that's going on mentally, physically. And by the way, it involves the whole physical health bundle of exercise, eating right, keeping your social life. Over the past few years, I have a couple of friends that my husband and I go out with, let's say, every three months, we'll hit the um, theater listings and see what it is we have to see. So I think that all of these areas of one's life as a creative person, no matter if you're a painter or a philosopher or a writer of thrillers, whatever you're doing, I have a friend who writes thrillers and he says, it's like, it's like laying pipe. You have to do it every day. Yeah, I love that analogy. You have to keep, you know, you have to, it's like a muscle, right? You have to keep exercising it and all of it working. You have to be physically fit. You have to be mentally fit. You have to keep up with your friendships. Mm-hmm. You know, the best pieces of advice I ever got was from my first therapist in New York in 1963. I got into therapy basically to figure out my drinking and figure out why I tried to kill myself at 14 one of the best decisions I ever made. And one of the things he said to me was, I think I might have been complaining and saying, you know, I call people, they don't call me back. And he said, 
You call them. That's how this works. You call them is one of the strongest methods of staying in touch with not only other people, but with your own life. That's great advice. In terms of things that you've done over the generations with regard to, you know, mental health and other sort of social justice topics, are those still on your mind when you're creating? Oh, of course, always. I wrote a song a few years ago called Dreamers, which is really about the problem of immigration with the DACA, unfortunate situation in which they are. And, you know, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. Uh, the Dreamers have so many issues. There's a song on my new album, which is an interesting adjunct to the social activism that you spoke of. I've always been socially active. I've always been an advocate for the downtrodden and for peace in the world and for taking care of yourself and breaking taboos. How do you prepare for a show? How, you know, what do you, what do you do? In, what do you do in like, I'm saying the, like the hour before you go on stage, like how do you, you know, get, get ready to go on stage? Everything about everyday life is preparing to get on the stage. This is a physical enterprise. It involves your daily routine what time you get up, what time you have breakfast, when you go to your trainer, how many steps you get on your Fitbit, everything about daily life. Did you eat, did you sleep eight hours last night? Yes, I did. Did you have breakfast? Yes, I did. Are you going to do a lot of interviews? Yes, I am. Tonight I'm going to go to um, a meeting where I'll get to meet the new president of Columbia University. Oh, wow. That's how I prepare. Mm -hmm. I have a life of commitment to health, welfare, friendship, activities, morning, noon, and night. I wrote a book called Morning, Noon, and Night. And it's about how we prepare for our lives. I love that answer. That is a beautiful answer. Um, I guess we'll close out then. I just want to ask you, what do you want the audience to know about you know, your upcoming performance here in the Capital Region? So you're going to hear holiday songs, but you're also going to hear hits. So at least four of the songs that I've made famous will be on the show, okay? Oh, that's exciting. Looking forward to it. Judy Collins will be at Universal Preservation Hall in Saratoga Springs, December 16th. Show begins at 7.30. That is it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom. The Eagle is a production of The Times Union. It's produced and edited by me with help from The Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks to Kathleen Moore for contributing to this episode.